We're starting this new series this morning. Uh, the series title is Hebel, and I'm going to we'll explain what that means here a little bit in the sermon. We're going to talk about that, but we are looking at, uh, we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're going to be spending the next several weeks uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you're here with us in person, you can grab your Bible and find the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in that today. It's one of those books that we don't always read a lot. Uh, it's, kind of, it's in the Old Testament. Again, if you're with us online, we're glad to have you. But you can grab your Bible and kind of find it. But um, So like I said, today, though, I just have a couple warnings for us before we jump into the message for today. First off is the sermon today is a little bit different than what the rest of this series will be. Okay, because we have to lay the foundation of what this book is and kind of the, the background and how it's written. And so today is a little more content heavy than normal. Okay, so we are going to be to kind of, again, look at the backstory and structure of the book. And, and uh, so a little more content today than in a normal message. Okay, and the, definitely that's the first warning. The second warning is as we dive into the book of Ecclesiastes, this book was written over 3,000 years ago. It was, it was, uh, it, it's, it's a book that, as we read it, you're kind of like, wow, is this, is this really in the Bible? It is. And so it kind of warning that, and I encourage you to read it. I encourage you to go home and read it. It's 12 chapters. It's not extremely long, but I encourage you to read it. And again, through this series, we are going to cover the entire book, um, but it, it, it's, it's very random, right? It feels like when you read it, it bounces from topic to topic and lots of different things. But the warning is that, Ecclesiastes is not politically correctly written. It's not politically correct in the way it's written. And so just know that, right, going in. But the awesome thing about Ecclesiastes is it doesn't pull any punches either. It really says the way that things are. So as we say that, we look into this, we're going to dive right into kind of the foundation and look at the bigger picture of Ecclesiastes and just the wisdom literature in General. So, as we uh, we're going to start there. Okay, Ecclesiastes is a part of, of the section of Old Testament scripture known as the wisdom literature. Okay, now this this section of writing it's it's unique writing. Okay, just like there's all these different kinds of writing in that. There's historical books, right? There's poetry, there's prophecy, there there's there's letters, there's all lots of all different kinds of writing within the Bible. And, and this section, this wisdom literature section, is, is written differently than, than other books of the Bible. The overall kind of purpose of this section is to answer the question of what does it mean to live life well? Again, it's, it's applying wisdom to everyday life, right? Wisdom of who God is, of who we are, and how we interact, and how it interacts with life. And how do we do that, live life successfully, right? Serving, uh, serving God. There are three main books of the wisdom literature. The first book is the book of Proverbs. Now, this book um, is, is full of like basically one-liner like nuggets of wisdom. In fact, that's the way that a lot of people read Proverbs. In fact, I, have, I read through a Bible reading plan. Um, I do that for my personal devotions. Every morning I get up and I read the Bible. That's one of the first things I do when I wake up. And I, I'm using the one-year Bible, and in that plan... Um, I read a proverb every day. Right? Is, is, I, I read one, and it's just this, again, one line usually, or a couple sentences, right, of just of the nugget of wisdom for that day. And this is, this is Proverbs. I mean, that's the perspective it's written from. It's written from the mother wisdom perspective. 
And as you read Proverbs and take the wisdom that's in it, it's that if you use that wisdom, it will bring you success. Proverbs is a very much a cup half full type of perspective. Now, the next book, which is Ecclesiastes that we look at, is actually the other side of this perspective. The book of Ecclesiastes is not mother wisdom, it is the critic. In fact, Ecclesiastes comes from the perspective of the cup is always half empty. And again, it's, ultimately, it's even if you live with wisdom, it is still all meaningless. Isn't that incredibly encouraging? <laughs> again, Ecclesiastes comes from that perspective. I mean, it's saying, again, it's about wisdom, but yet it's a very pessimistic view. Right? That just this world is really messed up. Right? And that's just kind of the perspective of Ecclesiastes. Hey, now, the, the third um, book, main book of the wisdom literature, um, is completely different from the first two. Right? So we have Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are kind of, kind of the opposite ends of the spectrum, but both looking at wisdom. Now, the, the third wisdom literature book is the book of Job. Now, Job is very unique. Okay? Job is a book that it is a narrative story about a righteous servant. In fact, the righteous servant is Job. However, um, Job is not the author, and it's not even written from Job's perspective. It is the story about Job. In fact, um, the book of Job is actually this narrative story, and the, the main characters of it is God and Satan. They, and the, the perspective of the story comes from the heavenly realms. It, is, it, it describes, again, Job's life. Now, uh, this book is actually very complicated. It's the, the oldest, most complicated version of Hebrew in all of Scripture. Okay? And it's one that the scholars have just kind of debated over and, and things for a long time. But, but as we look at that, the, um, the, the purpose um, of Job, again, is it proposes that if good things weren't provided that Job wouldn't love God at all. And this was presented to God, and so, but then the ultimate conclusion of the book is that God is God, and neither human wisdom or earthly experiences will change that. And again, Job is a very interesting book. If you've never read it, I encourage you to do that as well. Um, but we're not diving into Job. This, this is about Ecclesiastes, but I wanted you to see kind of where it fits in this bigger pic- picture of wisdom literature. Now, there, there are a few other pieces of wisdom literature that, that loosely fit into this category. Um, parts of the book of Psalms are considered wisdom literature. Now, Psalms, again, is one of those, it has some, a few different things in it. A lot of it is songs, right? And, but there's also some parts of it that fit into the wisdom literature genre of Psalms. The other book is, is another book that Solomon wrote, the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, depending on your version of how it titles it. Um, it, it also kind of loosely fits in uh, to the wisdom literature uh, category. But as we look at this entire section, in fact, of, of the Bible, especially this Old Testament, um, in fact, as, as many of you know, I was a youth pastor for many years, and I told a lot of kids that if you actually just read the Bible, the Bible is actually rated R. Okay, there's a lot of the Bible that, again, it doesn't hold back, right? And, and in fact, if you look at the wisdom literature, this is one of the sections that make it, give it that rating. I mean, the reality, right? Um, and, and as you look at that and we read that, there's, there's this whole section of wisdom literature. And then as we zoom in from that, we zoom into the book of Ecclesiastes. And that is, again, our focus of this series and of this study. Now, as we do that, um, we look at the book of Ecclesiastes and just know, again, if you've already read it, you already know this, okay, that Ecclesiastes is a tough book. It's a tough book. In fact, 
it's one of the toughest books to grasp in the entire Bible. And because of the perspective it gives, the language it uses, and so, in fact, Ecclesiastes, along with the book of Revelation, are at the top of the list of the books that most Christians just simply ignore. And saying, I'm just not going to read it, okay, because, because of their complexity and their confusing language, and it brings up topics that a lot of us just don't want to think about. Hey, but yeah, that's exactly why we're going to dive into it, right? Is because it's in Scripture for a reason, right? It is, if God didn't want us to read it, then it wouldn't be in there, right? So we're not going to avoid it. Again, we're not going to, uh, again, just, just, just take the parts of the Bible that are easy or the parts that, that, are, that make us feel good, right? We're going to dive into all the Scripture. So that's why we're diving into the series, right, and into the study of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, with that said, um, to say, again, it is old language, right, and it's not politically correct, so there are parts of it, you might read it, and you'll, again, you'll read it, and you'll be like, is that really in the Bible? Yes, it is. Okay, now, as we look at that, to say, we'll start with the authorship of Ecclesiastes. Okay, the traditional authorship is King Solomon. Okay, Solomon was the one who wrote it, um, he wrote a lot of the wisdom literature, in fact. Um, so he was the king of Israel, he was the son of David, and he was known for his wisdom. So, you know, it kind of fits, right? Um, in fact, just to kind of get the backstory of who Solomon is and even why uh, he is so wise and known for that, wow, he got that reputation, I want to uh, read from um, 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. So if, you're, if you found Ecclesiastes, just kind of turn to the left a few books, okay, um, over to 2 Chronicles, and and this kind of introduces us to who Solomon is and, and lets us know why we should listen to him, even, okay? um, as we read and study his writings for the next six weeks. So, um, so 2 Chronicles um, chapter 1, okay, starting at verse 1, it says, So Solomon, son of David, took firm control of his kingdom, for the Lord his God was with him and made him very powerful. Solomon called together all the leaders of Israel and the generals and captains of the army and the judges and all the political and clan leaders. And then he led the entire assembly to the place of worship in Gibeon, for God's tabernacle was located there. This was the tabernacle that Moses, the Lord's servant, had made in the wilderness. David had already moved the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the tent that he had prepared for it in Jerusalem. But the bronze altar made by Bezalel, son of Uri, was, and grandson of her was there at Gibeon in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Solomon and the people gathered in front of it to consult the Lord. And there in front of the tabernacle, Solomon went up, up to the bronze altar in the Lord's presence and sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings on it. That night, God appeared to Solomon and said, what do you want? Ask and I will give it to you. And Solomon replied to God, you showed faithful love to David, my father, and now you have made me king in his place. O Lord God, please continue to keep your promise to David, my father, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me the wisdom and knowledge to lead them properly, for who could possibly govern this great people of yours? And God said to Solomon, because of your, your greatest desire is to help your people, and you did not ask for wealth, riches, fame, or even the death of your enemies, or a long life, but rather you asked for wisdom and knowledge to properly govern my people, I will certainly give you the wisdom and knowledge you requested. 
But I will also give you wealth, riches, and fame, such as no other king has had before you or will ever have in the future. And then Solomon returned to Jerusalem from the tabernacle at the place of worship in Gibeon, and he reigned over Israel. So we see this, this, again, this is the start of Solomon's reign as king, right? He followed King David, who, who you know, was arguably the best king right, that Israel ever had. Okay, this is the same David that killed Goliath and, and kind of leads and all that. I mean, again, this, now as David's um, life comes to an end, he passes the baton of leadership on to Solomon, his son. Okay, and then we see here, this is how he started, right? He, he sought the Lord, he asked for wisdom, and God granted it. And Solomon led Israel to great prosperity and wealth. In fact, his biggest accomplishment as king of Israel was building the permanent temple in Jerusalem. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem now, if you go to the Holy Land, the temple mount that is there is the same place right, that Solomon built that original temple. Now, that temple's not there anymore. I mean, it's been demolished and rebuilt several times. And, and, but the site, the temple mount, is still there in exactly the same place as it was when Solomon built it. Okay, so we see, again, uh, um, again, that Solomon was successful in building the temple, right? And yet this was something that David had longed to do, but yet God told him that he couldn't, that he was to wait, that that would be a job for his successor, and his successor was King Solomon. So there is some structure to the book of Ecclesiastes. Like I said, it does feel very random when you read it, and it bounces around to all kinds of different topics, um, but yet, the majority of the book seems like ramblings about random life observations and different experiences that we have in this world. Hey, but yet, there is some structure to it. And like I said, we are going to kind of bounce around and, and through the next six weeks as we will cover the entire book and all that it addresses. Um, but the, the bigger picture of the structure of it, um, of the book of Ecclesiastes, is that there are two voices in Ecclesiastes. They, and, and these voices are kind of given as two sides to a coin, right? They're opposites of each other. They, the, the first voice is the voice of the author. Okay? Now, the author opens the book and closes the book, okay? Verses 1, 1, and 2, and then 12, 8 through 14, this is the start and the end of the book. Okay? It, it's literally the opening and closing. It's the bookends of all of the content. Okay? And so this author kind of as a narrator, right, presents the bigger picture points, of the book. Okay, and now the author also takes a very positive approach. Right? The author is the source of hope, really, in the book. Okay, now, as you notice, though, there's just a few verses here, right, that are, are, are represented by the author. Um, and, but like I said, this is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin, the other voice in the book is the teacher. Okay, now the teacher is the one that provides all of the content, all the center part of it, from 1 verse 3 to 12 verse 7, um, is this several chapter long rant by the teacher. Okay, as he bounces around from topic to topic and observation and worlds and, and all this different thing that happens in, in this, this world. Okay, now the teacher takes a very opposite approach than the author. Right? The teacher is a skeptic and a pessimist about the way the world works. And so again, he comes from a negative perspective, right? This is the cup half empty all the time voice. Right? That is the majority of the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay, now, the, the, the thesis statement of the entire book okay, is given at the beginning 
and at the end. It's given by the author. It's the bigger picture. It is truly the bookends of, of everything that the teacher presents. Okay, and this is Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2 and also 12 verse 8. It is exactly the same statement in both verses where it says, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. Again, aren't we all glad to read that? Well, we feel uplifted in our faith, right? When we realize everything is meaningless, completely meaningless. Now, as we look at this statement, right, this literally is the thesis statement of the entire book. Okay, now, as we look at that, though, is there is this word that's used twice in these verses, okay, this word that is translated as meaningless. Now, this word um, is translated as meaningless in the NLT and also in the NIV version, depending on what version of Bible you're reading from. Um, it might be translated differently because this Hebrew word, again, that is translated as, as meaningless, is a very complicated word. Okay, now, um, this word is actually used 38 times in 12 chapters of the book. Okay, so it, it, pop, it keeps popping up, right? Every couple verses we see this word. Okay, that is translated as meaningless. Like I said, the NIV, NLT versions translate as meaningless. The King James Version and the NRSV Version and many others actually translate this word as vanity. Okay, everything's just vanity. Okay, now, this, the Hebrew word that is used here 38 times throughout the book um, is the word hebel. Okay, so that's the title of our series, right? It's, that's the, what the Hebrew word is. Okay, now again, this this. Most of the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, so what we have, again, is translations. And, and if you ever worked with a foreign language, as you translate back and forth between languages, you know that there are connotations that you lose. Right? There are words in some languages right, that you can't find an exact meaning. Now, this word, again, is a very complicated Hebrew word. Okay, the Hebrew word is hebel. Okay, now, what I've given you here is literally the Strong's Concordance definition of this Hebrew word. Okay, you'll see, right, there's, even, the, even the definition itself is pretty complicated. Okay, this word hebel is, means emptiness or vanity. Something tran- transitory and unsatisfactory, like a smoke or a vapor. It is beautiful and mysterious, an enigma. It's a person or thing that is mysterious, puzzling, or difficult to understand. You know, as we see this, even just this definition itself, right? You read that and you're like, I have no idea what that means, right? There's just kind of all of these big words, these big concepts, these, these things like it's here, but then it's gone. Like it, it, it's important, but it's not important. And there, you know, like it, it literally even the definition itself kind of is self-contradictory. And yet, again, we see our, 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 our biblical translators in these versions, right? Says, well, it's just all vanity or it's just all meaningless, Right? It's all for naught. Now, now, the important thing as we look at this is we see, again, the theme of the verse is, is that everything is hebel. Right? That we can't even understand it. It's all meaningless. It's just, it's empty. Right? But yet it's kind of important, but yet not in, in, in all of the things. Right? But we need to understand also that Ecclesiastes is a very unique book of the Bible. Okay? In that, the book of Ecclesiastes um, is not a book about God. Now, most of Scripture is written about God. Right? It is not a book about God. Okay? Ecclesiastes is a book about ideas. It's about human ideas. It's about ideas of how to survive in a world that is completely hebel. 
It's, Ecclesiastes is not written as a theological book. Most of Scripture is written as a theological book. Again, theo- theological, or the word theology, is, is, is literally the fancy scholarly word that means the study of God. In fact, most of Scripture is written from a theological perspective. Right? It tells us about who God is and about how he made us. Right? And how we're supposed to interact with that God. The majority of scripture is theological. Ecclesiastes is not. Ecclesiastes is ideological. Okay, ideological, again, is a fancy scholarly word that describes human ideas. Okay, Ecclesiastes is a study of human ideas and of observations. Right? Ecclesiastes is written from a human perspective. Right? Where the majority of scripture is written from a godly perspective. Now, even just starting to read the text of Ecclesiastes, we start to realize this pretty quickly, right? That this feels different than most other scriptures feel. So to see that, I want to literally read the opening thoughts of the teacher, okay, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. So if you found Ecclesiastes, you can flip back, open to it, and follow along. We're going to read verses 3 through 18. Okay, Ecclesiastes 1, starting at verse 3. It says, What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new, but actually it's old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past. And in, the f- and in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. I, the teacher, was king of Israel and I lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. I observed everything is going on under the sun, and really it is all hebel, like chasing the wind. What is wrong cannot be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. And I said to myself, look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly. But I learned firsthand that pursuing all this is like chasing the wind. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. And then Eeyore drops the mic and walks off. And we see, again, this, this perspective, right? This, this writing, it's different than we're used to reading in Scripture, right? Because it's not a book about God, right? It's a book about human ideas. Now, in the midst of all of the pessimism, in the midst of all of the, the discouraging ideas and thoughts, right, and interactions about how everything in this world is Hebel, there are three things that the author points out throughout the book there are three things that he never questions as being true. Now again, the reality is that the Ecclesiastes is a book with way more questions than answers. In fact, you can see even in that text, right, of how many questions are just popped up, right, and, and all those things. There's, there's way more questions than answers in the book, but yet there are three things 
the teacher never questions. Okay, the first one is this, is he never questions the fact that God exists. Okay, he never questions that God exists. Okay, to, to the teacher, this is a non-negotiable fact. And no matter how hebel everything gets, God is real. And you can see I've, I've given you some references there throughout the book of where he makes these emphatic statements about the fact that God exists without question. Okay, now with that said, is, is when we look at these things, right, again, that, that, that he looks at the world and brings all these things, and yet he never questions these, yet we can also look at our world, even today, in 2022, and realize that these are things that the world and that the enemy continues to feed into our minds and into our lives. Right, and these are things that we, again, even as, especially as followers of Jesus and as students of Scripture, have to step back and say, no, we cannot, we know that this is true. Right, we will not believe that lie. And yet, how many times do we see in our world, or have you heard from somebody say, right, that there is no God? In fact, this is what I believe to be the most foundational lie of the world and of the enemy. Right, is that there is no God. But it's a lie. And yet, the teacher never questions whether God exists. He believes it's true, that there is a God, and he's real. We see one of these statements here in Ecclesiastes 3.17, right, where it says, I said to myself, in due season, God will judge everyone, both good and bad for all their deeds. Again, this is a very emphatic statement, right? There's no wiggle room in that statement, right, of the fact that there is a God. And so, again, he never questions it, right? Even in the midst of all the questions in the book, he knows that God exists. The next thing, he kind of builds on top of that. Well, if God exists, then the next thing that he never questions, right, is he doesn't question God's sovereignty. Again, sovereignty is, is again, a big scholarly word. But what that word means is God's power, and God's authority. The fact that God is the top of everything, that he is the uncreated creator, that he is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is all authority. That nothing can question God. That he ultimately is in control. Right? That's what sovereignty means. And he never questions God's sovereignty. Now, again, if we look at our world, and again, the world was true when Solomon was there. It's still true today, especially in our world, right? Again, the, the next lie, right, beyond that there is no God, right, the next lie of the world or enemy is that, well, if there is a God, he has no authority over me, right? Even if there is a God, I'm still going to do what I want to do. I can make the rules. I can decide what's right and wrong. I live for me. Right? And yet, we, again, we see this going rampant in our world today, don't we? And yet God's sovereignty shows and makes the statement that God is the ultimate authority. That God is the creator. He's the one that, that's in charge. He's the one that gets to make the rules. He's the one that decides what is right and what is not. And, and again, the teacher never questions God's sovereignty. 
In Ecclesiastes 11.5, he says, Just as you cannot understand the path of the wind or the mystery of a tiny baby growing in its mother's womb, so you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. Again, he makes a very emphatic statement here and in several other verses throughout the book that God is God and he will do whatever he wants to do. And there's nothing we can do to change that. He never questions that God exists and he never questions God's power or his authority. That he is sovereign. And then as we look at at these two things, again, as he continues to build on top of this, the third thing, right, that kind of caps it all, right, as far as that he never questions throughout the entire book, is he never questions God's love. Again, he, he never questions that God exists, right, that God is powerful, but he also never questions the fact that he is also relational and loving. He never questions that God cares. He never questions that the fact that God actually cares about us. And that that God actually loves you more than you can fathom or imagine. Even when we mess it all up. Right? Even if we deny his existence, even if we try to make up all the rules, right? it does not change the fact that God loves you. That is, in fact, a part of God's character is his love. Now again, when you look at the lies of the world, the lies of the enemy, right? it is, again, the world will tell you that even if there is a God, that that God doesn't care about us or that God is unknowable, that that God is distant. And again, the, the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes never questions the fact that God exists, that he is sovereign, and that he is a relational God, that he loves you more than you can imagine, and that he wants a relationship with every one of us, that he is a personal, relational God, all-powerful and all-loving if you see Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20, one of the places where he kind of describes God's love. He says, even so, I have noticed one thing, at least, that is good. It is good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life that God's given them, and to accept their lot in life. And it is, and it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life. This is indeed a gift from God. God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. Are you saying that God loves you so much? Right? That all this other stuff going on, even the heaviness of life, doesn't even compare to the fact that God gives you all of that he gives you. Right? That he loves you. God loves you so much that he wants to bless your life. God loves you so much he wants to give you pleasure, right, and and contentment in a world that just chases it like chasing the wind. God loves you. And it's as true right now today as it was when he wrote it 3,000 years ago. 
No matter how crazy or chaotic this world is, it does not change the fact that God exists, that he is sovereign, and that he loves you more than you can fathom. Hey, God loves you so much that he wants to save you. God loves you so much that he sent his son to live a sinless life, to die on a cross, to rise again on the third day, right? All that we just celebrated through the Easter season. Right? Was God putting action behind his love? And he loves you so much that he wants to, to pay the price for your sin and, and to rekindle the relationship that he desires for you. And all we have to do to receive that love is just accept it. Open our, our heart and our mind and receive God's love and invite him in. That's how much he loves you. God loves you so much that he wants to save you. And once you're saved and, and once you, you walk with God and you're surrendered to him, you join the journey of faith and then God loves you so much he wants to continue to bless you. Right? He loves you so much he wants to transform you to be more like him through the power of his spirit. Right? He wants to change the way you, you think and the way you act and, and the way you interact with the world, right? And not from my own perspective, but from the perspective I gain from God. God loves you so much he wants to save you and God loves you so much he wants to bless you. And as we look at, at the book of Ecclesiastes, and as we look at just the world we live in today, there are more questions than answers. There's no shortage of chaos. But yet when we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, the overall purpose of the book is to wrestle with the idea that life doesn't make sense. That things happen in this world that shouldn't happen. That there are some questions that just simply don't have good answers. And even though all of that is true, God is still on his throne and he loves you more than you can imagine, no matter what. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes wrestles with and that's the question it seeks to answer. And I'm sure you agree with me to say that this book is more relevant today probably than it's ever been before. And as we dive into it, I will say, as, again, I don't know where you're at in your faith journey. I don't know how chaotic your world feels now, but I will tell you that God exists. He is on his throne. He is sovereign. He is in control, and he loves you. And what will our response be to those facts? Again, I don't know where you're at in your faith journey today, but I hope that you will move closer to that God whether that's receiving him for your sa as your savior for the first time, surrendering your heart and your life and, and asking him for forgiveness and his grace and mercy to come in and to save you. Or maybe you've been walking with God for decades and you just continue to praise him, right? Or maybe it's taking another step forward in your faith and be, be more like God tomorrow than you are today. But wherever you're at, know that those things are always true. This is my final thought for us today. It comes out of Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. Will you fear God and will you obey his commands? Right? And it all boils down to those very simple things. Will you let God in and will you do what he says? Like I said, I don't know where your life is at. I don't know where your faith is at, but I hope that you will take a step forward in your faith today. Lord God, that is our prayer today. 
Lord, that you would just speak truth into our hearts. God, fill our minds, Lord, with thoughts of you. God, show us your truth. God, that we can see so easily the lies of the world. God, we thank you for the wisdom that Solomon gives us in your word. Lord, I pray that, Lord, as we seek you, as we live out our faith, as we, Lord, show this world who you are by how we seriously we take our faith. Lord, this next week as we go, Lord, that we truly will just be your church. God, that we will not just take a step in our own faith, but God, we will continue to, to shed your light into this dark world. Lord, bring structure where there's chaos. Lord, bring love where there's hate. God, bring freedom where we're trapped. Lord, we thank you that you're real. We thank you that you're sovereign. We thank you for loving us. And Lord, guide us as we go this week, as we live out our faith every chance we have. As we share your love with our neighbors and our families and our co-workers. God, may you be glorified. We love you. We praise you. Guide every step as we go this week in Jesus' name.